Hello and welcome back to the Mindful Belly Don't Eat Your Feelings podcast. I'm your host and health coach, Ellie Rome. So today in this episode, you guys, I am so excited to share with you a really powerful interview I had with Leanne Lindsay. Leanne is a writer and a holistic lifestyle educator. Her passion lies in helping people achieve their highest potential. And she believes that in order to become our best selves, we can't just simply focus on one singular aspect of ourselves. We have to come in with this holistic approach, pursuing growth in all areas of life, the physical, the mental, emotional, and spiritual health. The reason I'm so excited we have to have Leanne on here is that, is that she has a depth of knowledge in psychology. And I know for myself, being a former binge eater, sugar addict, struggled with body image issues, and to be able to pick her brain and get her perspective on these topics. So in this episode, we dive into a large range of things, a lot focused on uncovering our unconscious belief systems that are driving destructive behaviors, as well as breaking cycles with toxic foods. So there's just so much to explore here. I would love your feedback. And if you could do me the biggest favor, if y'all enjoy this podcast, please leave a review. Let me know what you think. Let me know what you'd like more of, or feel free to DM me anytime on Instagram. I love connecting with you and love when y'all reach out to me. So, so please do that. And before we begin, I want to share with you about the upcoming Mindful Belly 21 Day Reset. So I'm so freaking excited about this next round. For those of you who don't know what this is, I lead a group reset about four times a year to launch you into your best health and help you transform your relationship with food. This is so much more than just telling you like, eat this, not that. You are going to learn sustainable, practical ways to make healthy eating really work into your life for the long term. My favorite thing I hear from my resetters at the end of the 21 days is that they do not want to stop. They're like, Ellie, I want to keep going. And I'm like, yes, that is my mission. My mission is to help give you the tools to make this your life, to make this not some quick fix diet that you end up binging or feeling hungry or feel deprived and then go back to your old ways. And on top of that, during these 21 days, you get support from me and an amazing community of people that are resetting together, that you're learning these mindful eating tools that I use myself to heal my body, to break through sugar addiction, to break through my binge eating behaviors. And The best thing about this program is also that it's super flexible to make work into your schedule. It is fully densely packed. We've got 21 days with live group coaching calls, daily live fitness classes, live meditations every day. We've got guest expert speakers and workshops and fitness trainers and yoga teachers that come in, but you don't have to do everything. You get access to all all the recordings so you can make it fit in your schedule. You can take what you want and leave the rest and do whatever serves you. The main part is that you are consciously up-leveling, that you are learning these tools, learning how to implement them, and making progress. So our whole mantra through this program is progress, not perfection. So this sounds good to you, or if you're interested, check it out at mindfulbelly.com backslash 21-day reset. And I do cap this program at 50 people because I want to make sure that I can support everyone and hold everyone accountable to their unique. And if you're listening to this episode, use code mindful25 to save $25 before December 25th. And tell your friends and family. It's so fun to do with a friend or family member with you. You get to share recipes. You get to bounce ideas off each other and just even get that additional accountability. So if you have any questions, DM me on Instagram at mindfulbelly. And yeah, let's go to the show. All right. Hi, Leanne. How are you? Hello. I'm wonderful. Thank you so much, Ellie, for having me on. 
Yes. Thank you so much for being here. I'm so excited to get to talk to you and I'm so grateful that we connected. Yes. Likewise. And <laughs> I'll, you know, I'll be sharing your podcast interview on my podcast soon. So I'm super excited that we did a little bit of an exchange here. Yes. Yes. And all of you listeners go check out the Accrescent podcast. It's so good. And yes, for sure. <laughs> but, but I guess to begin, could you just share a little bit about who you are and what got you into the work that you do? Yeah. So I always struggle with this question because I never wanted to be defined by just one thing. And so I really look at it as much less of who am I and what do I do versus what are my passions. And so for me, my main, main passion is helping people become the best version of themselves possible. And so really at the end of the day, I would call myself a communicator. I love to communicate life-changing information to individuals. And so there's really three main ways I do that through my website, my podcast, and then of course, social media, because who isn't on social media these days, but it really, it stemmed from, yeah, I, even as a young, young child, I wanted to be the best version of myself. And so that personal goal really turned into a life's mission of how can I also help other individuals achieve their best self. And so almost naturally that led me into a very integrative, holistic approach to life and health because conventional medicine, conventional products don't often take into account the full being. And I really believe at my root, the accrescent, the name of my podcast means continual growth. And I really believe that in order to have that continual growth and achieve the best version of ourselves, we have to focus on every aspect of the human being. So that's physical health, mental health, emotional health, spiritual health. It's all of it combined. And so that's why it really, everything I write about really comes from a very holistic perspective, you know, and again, that as I, it almost naturally led me into that integrative perspective because I wasn't always there. I, you know, grew up eating all the horrible things we eat as kids. Um, but as I was on that journey of learning more, how can I be better? What's the next best thing I can add to my life? It just naturally took me to a place of, oh, so many of these things, so many of these conventional products are actively harming my body. And so it's very counterintuitive for me to be consuming things, using things on my body that are actively harming me and hindering me in my progress to become my best self. So everything on my website, my podcast, my social media is, it always comes from a full being approach and a very non-toxic holistic approach. Beautiful, yes. And I think it's so needed in this time. Yes, absolutely. And you know, I'll throw in too that my background is in public health. And I worked as a research assistant through university. And so I really developed a very strong appreciation for science-backed information. You know, I, when I was growing up, it was very much the time of people were getting their information from magazines and, you know, little blurbs on the internet. And there was just no science behind any of it. And so I really wanted to bring the science to a holistic lifestyle to the forefront. And so everything I write, there's always a reference list of the actual published peer-reviewed studies where that information is coming from so that people can know it's not just woo-woo, it's not just old wives' tales, some of these natural things. There's actually so much science behind them. Yes, I love that you say that because it's so common to even just see headlines of things like claiming certain things and then like not knowing 
where that information is coming from and just, and just believing it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I, as a research assistant, you know, you really learn to analyze studies and see how reliable they really are. <laughs> and so you'll, you know, I would look into an article that I was reading and they'd reference a study. So I'd go look at the study and there were like 10 participants. And so then you realize, okay, well, that can't really be extrapolated to the whole world. And so I really try to find those studies that were really well designed studies and, you know, very reliable. <laughs> yes. And that's so important. And what do you, how did you get into public health? What made you want to do that? You know, it's funny. I going through college, so I was playing soccer. So I was on the soccer team at my university. I was recruited and on an athletic scholarship there. And I actually wanted to study public health and psychology, but it was just too much to do all at once. And so again, even at that age, I wanted to help people. I wanted to help tangibly change their lives. And so it was a little bit of, okay, do I do only psychology or do I do only public health? And at the time I was like, I don't know if I can be a psychologist and on a daily basis be taking in people's heavy, heavy issues. I think it would just wither me over time too quickly. And what I love about public health is it's really coming from a prevention standpoint versus unfortunately, most conventional medical doctors are really coming at a, let's treat the issue once it's already there. And even then we're really only going to treat the symptoms. So for me, public health was really the root of it. Let's prevent the problem before it even comes. But, you know, having worked as a research assistant, I really started to see, oh my gosh, this is just the world of research and designing these public health programs. It takes years and years and years to design it and then you have to implement it and then you have to analyze all the data and by then it could be five or ten years later and you might find out hey that program didn't do anything so I was like okay that's that's too slow and depressing for me which is why I really just got into writing on my own starting my own podcast so I can just share the information I'm learning you know as quickly as I want to yes oh I love that and how did this affect your personal health no, yeah. Well, you know, as I said before a little bit, I did not grow up really in a super healthy lifestyle. I mean, I was eating Oreos. We were sort of the house on the block where all the other kids came to to eat like the packaged frosting in a jar. <laughs> I would have been at your house all the time. <laughs> yeah. Because their parents were so strict and nothing against my parents. You know, I believe every parent is just doing the best they can. And so now they know more and they've changed their own habits too. But I mean, we grew up eating the most processed sugar you could possibly eat and nothing organic. Um, thankfully, we were all very active kids. I was, you know, we were all in sports from the time we could walk and was I was in competitive soccer for most of my life. But even once I got into college, it was really so much processed food. And I had a lot of issues from a young age. I had I had severe stomach pain on almost a daily basis, but it wasn't something, I was also a very introverted, quiet child. I kept a lot in my head. And so I don't think I voiced those daily pains as much as I should have. But then also I think as an adult now, and I've had more informed conversations with my parents, they really had a lot of their own shame and self-worth issues as adults. And so they didn't take care of their own health as well at the time. And now I'm learning, you know, that's because that's of what 
that's what they inherited. That's all of their own childhood trauma playing out. And now again, they're in such a healthier place, but I think they were really perpetuating something. And this is what I picked up is I'm not worthy of taking care of myself. I'm not worthy of eating the more expensive organic food. I'm not worthy of um, paying for a gym membership or X, Y, and Z, whatever it is. And so I really learned to just kind of beat it down. Oh, you have stomach pain. It's okay. It's not that big of a deal. You'll be fine. And so But as I got into university, actually, there was an athletic trainer on the team who said, well, you know, actually, you might have some issues with dairy or gluten, you should try cutting those out. And so I did, and it helped a little bit, but it was actually about three or four years ago, I decided to go completely vegan for a time. And that was the first time in my life that I didn't have stomach pain at all. And so I don't know, you know, really my theory on that is I think it's actually more the chemicals in conventional meats that were really upsetting me. Because, for example, when I travel to Europe, I don't have any stomach pain. I don't get bloated. I don't get inflamed when I eat the meat there. But when I eat it here, it's just instant stomach pain, knives in my body. I'm constipated for three days. So I really do think it's probably a lot more of the antibiotics and the hormones that are getting injected to those, the pesticides on the corn they're eating, et cetera, et cetera. That's a whole other episode all in of itself. But yeah, really it was coming to a place of, wait a second, I am having issues and it is okay. I deserve to live a happier, healthier life. And so for me, that was really the turning point that all of a sudden was like, okay, you know what? I deserve to eat things that make me feel good. And it's okay for me to say that doesn't make me feel good. I'm not going to eat that, which initially was very difficult because my family, they're very much just kind of a suck it up, tough it out. Eh, There's not really much science behind that, which is another reason why I really wanted to show, no, there is a lot of science behind it. And so there was pushback at first of, no, just eat it. Come on. It's fine. You're being so sensitive. Um, But I think the more that I really stood firm in my worth, I think it spilled over onto them a little bit and now their lives are much healthier too because of it. I love that, that it's a ripple effect. And Mm -hmm. how, how did you do that? How were you able to stand in your power? I feel like that's a, that's a big issue. I see a lot is people struggling to, to voice what they actually need. Mm -hmm. So for me, a lot of it was, again, as I, as an adult, I've had much more in-depth conversations with my parents. And I really got to a point where I could see most of their habits were just things they picked up from their childhood. It was their coping mechanisms that they picked up from childhood or their lack of self-worth playing out in their life. And I really had to look at it and say, okay, they are maybe judging me for my new lifestyle choices because they themselves don't have the self-worth to implement it. They feel shame around it. And so that's what's speaking. It's not really them that's speaking to me through this. It's their own trauma and issues coming out through that. And so really separating myself from it, you can't take it personally at all. And at the end of the day, you just have to say, the people who really, the people who I really want in my life are the ones who are going to support me no matter what. And it's it comes back to setting those boundaries, right? And when you set those boundaries, 
people are either going to respect them or not respect them. And the people who don't respect them, I got to a point where I just said, they may not have as much of a intimate part in my life as the other people. And so it's scary because when you go about setting those boundaries or you go about saying, hey, I'm going to do this or change this in my life and you can either support me or not. It's scary because there are by default going to be people who fall off. But thankfully, each day that I stood firm and each, you know, if we're using the example of dietary habits, each dinner that I went to at their house where I didn't eat the things that upset my stomach, the more and more supportive they became, the more they started to listen to why I was choosing to do those things. And granted, it, I try not to be too pushy. For the most part, I just don't say it. You know, if they're passing around the bread basket, I'll just pass it to the next person. I don't announce to the whole family, oh, I'm not eating bread anymore because blah, 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 blah. You know, I really try to make it so that unless someone's asking me directly, I don't talk about it too much because they really need to be in that learning mindset to really even absorb anything anyways. But I think it was just that it was really committing to myself that I'm going to do this. I'm worthy of doing this. I deserve to feel okay. And then really just saying, look, if you're not on board, you're not on board. And I'm, I'm not going to look to you. I'm not going to choose you as a confidant in this. And again, thankfully my family and friends really did get on board over time, but (laughs) If there were any that weren't, I would just say, again, I don't think that you're going to play as much of a role in my life. If you choose to not love me or support me just because I don't want to eat certain things or I don't want to put put certain products on my body, you know? Yes. Thank you so much for that. I think it's so important for people to hear and be able to have those boundaries and, and realize that they're worth feeling good and they're worth doing that for themselves and that the people that support them will stay and naturally the others will go away. And that's probably for the best. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's not easy because again, you know, so much of I've, what I talk about always comes back to what we picked up through childhood. And I think a lot of us picked up a lot of feelings of low self-worth and I don't deserve this. And so for me as a child, that's what was modeled to me. My parents didn't eat very healthy. My parents didn't take care of themselves. Anything that was above and beyond was, you know, too much, or it was selfish to have. And so that is what was modeled to me. That's what my subconscious picked up. And so as an adult, I really had to look at and say, why? Why is there so much resistance in my heart to eating healthier, to taking care of my body better, to spending a little more money on things that I know are going to feed my mind and my body and my soul? And it came back to, oh, because subconsciously, I don't believe I'm worthy of that. And so you have to go, okay, where in my childhood did my subconscious pick that up? And then when you really get to the root of that and unlock it, all of a sudden it kind of washes away and you go, oh my gosh, that's not real. That's just what was modeled to me because of their own childhood. But I don't want that to be the default pattern that I'm living out anymore. Yes. And once you recognize that default pattern, were you able to start seeing it? Like, was it, did it become aware when you were kind of falling back into that? Oh, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. Because I started to realize, you know, again, for me, there was so much resistance and there was a lot of shame around starting to eat healthy and shame around 
oh, you're not going to eat the dairy because it makes you feel sick. You know, that was, and that was sort of how people around me were responding. And I just, anytime I felt that resistance or that shame come up, I realized, okay, this is a subconscious trigger. This is triggering something in my subconscious and I just have to go back to it. And so it's really being aware every time that twinge of shame or that twinge of uncomfortableness comes up, it's something being triggered deep down. And to me, it's really just an opportunity to say, okay, what is this? And so, yeah, now I'm much, much more attuned to it. And it still happens today, you know, in so many different ways playing out. Um, so much of us is, we're just living out our subconscious patterns that we've picked up through childhood. But yeah, really for me, once I went back to whatever it was and identified where in childhood I picked that up, for me, I was able to right then and there release it to an extent and then see it come up throughout my life. And when it does come up, you're able to again say, okay, I see this. This is subconscious programming. It's not actually how I feel. And you really just have to walk yourself through it every single time. And eventually you get to a point where that new programming has been really solidified in you and that old programming falls away. Yes. Oh, thank you for explaining that. That's so good. And, <laughs> and I guess like to tap in a little bit more around the foods themselves, like that you noticed for you specifically, which, what foods were you eating before that you think were your main, that really like main triggers, I guess. Oh, it's, I mean, so many, like first and foremost, uh, processed foods, just so much processed foods and foods with synthetic additives. So I think we're all pretty aware. There's some really general big ones, dairy, gluten, now grains in general, we know, and there's so much science to show that these are very, very inflammatory in general. And so I've actually, I try to cut out for the most part, I've recently cut out gluten completely and I'm feeling 1000 times better, um, but gluten, dairy, and, and then I really, really try to cut out processed foods as much as possible, but there's a baseline, right? So whereas before, maybe I would eat a pack of Skittles and, um, you know, conventional meats and conventional frozen foods, whatever it is. Now there's a baseline of, okay, maybe I'll have something sweet that has sugar in it, but it's going to be a natural source of sugar. And it's not something I'm going to eat all the time, but there's a baseline for me that I will not go below. Like I will not eat anything that has synthetic flavors, synthetic colors, or synthetic sweeteners in it. It's insane how much those chemicals hijack our brains and our body. And I've seen it now as an adult, because I I don't eat them anymore. And just like a few months ago, I think I had, I had some bite of a candy. I think it was like a taffy. And that has all of the above, high fructose corn syrup, fake colors, fake sugars, et cetera. And I literally for a week after that was craving sugar on another level, which I don't, I don't have cravings anymore now that I've cut out all those fake things. And I could see it was such an eye opener for me of, oh my gosh, these are just so incredibly stimulating, overstimulating to the brain that it just completely hijacks you. So for me, it's like, you know, I'll waver here and there with maybe I'll have like a tad of gluten here or some really good cheese from France here or a little bit of something with high sugar here, but I will not touch or mess with anything synthetic. 
Yes. Oh, this is so good. I love what you said about up-leveling the, like your baseline. Like now your default, if you were to like fall or not fall, but like choose something, it's just like, you've got a different standard for yourself. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, you know, that's what I really always try to talk to people about is, you know, like, let's say we're on an, on an upward slope in life and your baseline's down here. Look, it's not about raising it to the top of the mountain tomorrow. It's about just going one step up. And then your baseline's a step higher. And tomorrow, maybe it's going to be a step higher. And then you look back in a year from now, you're 300 steps higher. So I really always want to share the message to people. Like, look, it's about those tiny shifts, making those tiny shifts regularly. That's really going to take you so far. It's not about the whole, I'm going to set 20 New Year's resolutions and then not meet any of them. And then when you do mess up, it rather than trying to never make a mistake. It's about when I do mess up, when I do have gluten, okay, well, how quickly can I get back on track? And so for me, that's really what it's become, you know, is, and then also acknowledging, okay, I see this piece of gluten here, or I see this piece of bread. It looks really, really good. I know it's going to cause me to be bloated, slow down my digestion, give me perioral dermatitis around my mouth, which is what I get when I eat gluten. And so if I do choose to eat it, it's with the knowledge that it's going to do all those things to me. And then I can make that decision. And more often than not, I say, no, it's not worth it. Now, every once in a while, maybe it is worth it. If I'm in France and I want to have this beautifully freshly baked baguette, it's worth it. But then I also know all the things I can do to help mitigate some of those symptoms and then also get back on track with a healthier diet afterwards yes I'm literally dancing in my mind because this is like I have like 100% what you said <laughs> this is the, the mentality to have the 1% up level the and then the worth it foods like do I want to feel this way cool if I do then I'm consciously choosing that and I know what it's going to do to me and I can accept it versus like guilt or shame or just denial that that's actually happening Yes, exactly. Yeah. And same thing with like the taffy you mentioned. I've had similar experiences with just realizing even something that's like, quote unquote, like a healthier, like an up-leveled sugar thing that it just lights my brain up so much that I'm craving for a week. And it's just like, that is not worth it to me. Like, I don't want to think about sugar. It's so much wasted energy in my mind. So I'm like, yeah. And that's, I mean, I didn't say it too, but that just sugar in general is such a big one. Um, we eat 300% more sugar now on a daily basis than we did in the 1800s. I think it was something like the average person had four grams of sugar a day. And now we have like 77 grams of sugar a day. It's just absurd. And it creates so much inflammation, which when you think about, you know, dairy, gluten, grains, sugar, even natural sugar, too much of it is very inflammatory. And you think about chronic diseases, autoimmune diseases, they all come from chronic inflammation in the body. So if you're eating tons of dairy, tons of gluten, tons of sugar on a regular basis, you are going to get a chronic disease or an autoimmune disease at some point in your life because we were just not made to eat that much of it. And then the other thing that I did actually want to throw in here is people have to get sensitivity testing right? We think about allergy testing, but for the most part, if you have an allergy to something, you're very aware of it because the reaction is so severe. But 
so many of us have sensitivities to foods that we're eating on a regular basis that are creating that low level inflammation, causing those really kind of minor fizzy symptoms like brain fog, maybe aching in the joints that are really hard to pin down to one thing. And so I I tell everyone, you have to get sensitivity tested because there could be foods, again, that you're eating every day that are just creating that low level inflammation that at one point is going to be too much for your body to handle. So, and, and I always tell people too, when you have sensitivities, it means your gut health is really poor. And so when you get a list, people get really intimidated because they get this big, long list of everything that their body is showing it's sensitive to. And they think, oh my gosh, I'm never going to be able to eat these 20 foods again. And the answer is no, you cut them out for, you know, six months, maybe a year, you really focus on healing up your gut. And then you start to reintroduce them little by little, and then your body's able to process them again as that inflammation goes way down. Yes. Yes. And what testing do you recommend to people? Oh gosh, (laughs) that's super hard. I have to, I think I'll have to email you the name of the one I do. I go to an integrative health clinic here in Irvine, California, and they use a really specific lab, but I can't remember the name of it right now. So I'll have to email it to you. Yeah, that's perfect. But it's a blood test. They do a blood test. Okay. Awesome. And this is something that I am really passionate about as far as exactly what you said, you may get that huge list. It's like, it's okay. You, you, you can heal that and reintroduce and see how you feel once that, once you give yourself time to heal. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I myself had went through a, doing like a carnivore experiment because I had some eczema flare up after eating like a paleo style lifestyle for a, a long time. And it was certain, certain vegetables that I thought, you know, were benign were mm-hmm. causing me eczema. And so, um, yeah, just going through kind of a experiment myself and just exploring, learning. And I think, so this is great. Yeah. You know, and I love to tell people life, life comes in waves. So there may be a time in your life where this one food is really upsetting you and, or, you know, this, this type of exercise is too much for you. And I just tell people, listen, the more we start to listen to our bodies, our minds and our spirits, we can adjust our lifestyle. I've been in a phase for the last like three years where I don't want to do any high impact activity. I just don't. My body, my mind is so resistant to it. And so what does that mean? Do I just not work out at all? No, I shift my perspective on it, right? Because society tells us, you know, if you're not dead by the end of your workout, you didn't work out hard enough. And so I did have to change that programming in my mind. But as soon as I listened, my body was just saying, look, I just need, I just need movement. And so now for the most part, I'll walk first thing in the morning when I get up and then I'll do 10 minutes of really light cardio, like fast walking on the treadmill. And then I'll do maybe 20 to 40 minutes of some type of bar or Pilates or yoga workout. And that's it. And I, you know, that's coming from someone who in college was training four hours a day on the soccer team. So that was a really hard thing for me to shift, but that's where I'm at right now. And I, I was like, I don't want to run ever, ever again. And I know that's just how I'm feeling right now. There may come a time again where I'm like, you know what? I feel like running again, but I'll, I'll wait until my body gets there. And there's a reason my body's resistant to that right now. So I need to listen to that. 
Yes. Oh, I'm so glad you said this. I have just recently been, I'm dealing with this, um, learning about like how it flows with your cycle too, as a woman, like I can get so caught up in the mindset of, I follow a lot of men and I just want to, that are in that, like, go, go, go. And it's hard not to get sucked into and to realize like we have a rhythm in our month that there are some weeks that you may want to go hard and that's a great and your body thrives. And then there's weeks that you really do need the yoga or rest and to be able to let go of the expectation that you have to be a certain way all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And it, it's so easy for us to want to be like, okay, this is the workout I'm going to do every day forever. Forever. Yeah. <laughs> Cause it's just so easy. It's much harder to wake up every morning and say, what is my body telling me it needs today? And these are the two questions I ask myself every morning. What is my body telling me it needs today? And what is my spirit telling me it needs today? And that really informs the decisions I make about what I'm going to do that day in terms of eating, in terms of exercise, in terms of communicating with the people around me. And so it does take more effort to check in. It does take having the discipline to be still. But when you do and you start to give your body what it's truly craving, you'll almost find like all the things you're wanting, the weight loss, the feeling better come so much more naturally. It doesn't have to be this like daily uphill struggle to lose weight. When you give your body what it needs, it happens so effortlessly. Beautiful. Yes. <laughs> and as far as like other lifestyle things, so not even just food, like what other things do you feel like maybe you see people often miss or aren't addressing that would help them? <laughs> okay. So this is huge. And I have a huge stick about this because what I always say is look, what were we doing? how were we living a thousand years ago? Because really, in my opinion, and you'll have to back this up with someone else, but in my opinion, when we came into the industrial area, um, the industrial age, the technological age, things changed so dramatically for us. We went from being outside, moving around on a regular basis to all of a sudden within five years, sitting down and working all day long. And that's just simply not enough time for us evolutionarily to change. So our biology is still how it used to be a couple hundred thousand years ago. So I always say, you know, it comes back to the basics. How were we moving? How were we eating? How were we sleeping, et cetera? And so for me, those are the big things. And so movement, I know we we're trained to think, okay, if you work out for an hour a day, you're good. But we were not designed to just move hard for an hour a day and then just sit the rest of the day. So for me, when I'm working from home, I actually have an alarm that goes off every hour. And I'll go outside for five minutes so that I'm getting my sunshine. And then I move, I'll do just anything. It's not even specific. Maybe I'll do some jumping jacks, some squats, maybe I'll like dance around, but I just move for five minutes straight. And I do that every hour because I, we, our bodies have to have that movement throughout the day. And I know it's hard to implement, but look, if you're in an office, you can still do it. Jump up. Maybe it's two minutes instead of five that you just wiggle around, you do some stretches, et cetera. The other thing is sunlight. This is absolutely huge because we were not covered indoors for most of the time. Most of the time we were outdoors wandering around, collecting food, hunting, whatever it was. So we have to be getting outside. And I know now 
scientists will say we need a minimum of 20 minutes of sunlight a day, which most people aren't even getting that. But for me, again, I want that sunlight on a regular basis all throughout the day because that's what's really keeping our circadian rhythm on track. So I get out in the sun as soon as I'm awake. That's why I go on my morning walk. I get that movement and then I get that sun exposure, which, set, which sets off a whole cascade of hormone production that is actually going to help you be more focused, be more energized throughout the day, and then actually sleep better at night. So that's a huge one, getting the sunlight during the day. And then at night, as soon as the sun set, if you think back to how things were before the technological age, before electricity, there was no blue light after sunset. Maybe we had candles or just starlight. So there was no blue light, which blue light actually stops the production of melatonin. So when we're in our houses at night and we have all the lights on and the TV and the phone screen, it's telling our body it's daytime, it's daytime, it's daytime, don't produce sleep hormones, which is why so many people are tossing and turning. And when I implemented that, I actually have red light bulbs in my lamps in my room and then I also have amber tinted blue light blocking glasses that I put on should I still have lights on for whatever reason that I wear. And it has completely changed my sleep. And then the, the fourth and final one is food. What were we eating so many years ago? We, there was nothing we could eat that was made in a machine. So it's, you know, it kind of right off the bat. On the one hand, it's very simple. Just eat whole foods. But obviously easier said than done because the environment and the society we live in almost forces us to eat more processed foods because of the demands put on us. You need to be at work eight hours a day. That is more than half of your day. And so again, easier said than done, but those for me are the biggest, biggest ones. When I shifted those and really honored the evolutionary being inside of me, in a sense, every, so many things improved, my energy, my focus, my sleep, my body, like I said, I don't work out very hard, but I think because I'm eating in a way that heals my body and I'm moving regularly and I'm getting sunlight, it's so easy to maintain a healthy weight and a good body. I always tell people, I feel like I look better now than I did in college when I was training four hours a day. And it's so easy because I'm just feeding my body what it needs. Yes. And I think that often when we don't get these things, so the sun, the movement, fresh air, then often I think that is what drives a lot of the like overeating behaviors, toxic eating behaviors. It's because like your body's calling for something, it's not getting it. So we reach for our wine or just reaching for something else outside of ourselves to fulfill that need. Mm -hmm. It's always, I always say, you know, there's, we can make a downward spiral or we can make an upward spiral. And the downward spiral is, okay, we're super busy. So we start eating really processed toxic foods. Those toxic foods start to mess up the communication within our bodies, start to create a toxic overload within our bodies, which then affects our emotional state. You know, 95% of our serotonin is created in the gut, which is why there's such a connection between gut health and mental health. So we're eating bad, all of a sudden our emotional health starts to go, we start to get anxiety, we start to get depressed, which then leads us to want to eat more and more of those things. And it just keeps going down and down and down. But when you start to shift that, the reverse, 
you start to put good things that are healing your body. You don't start to put those toxic things in anymore. Then all of a sudden, oh, wow, my, my mental energy is lifting up. I have more energy. And then you have more energy to be more disciplined and not eat the bad things and eat the good things. And it just becomes this whole upward spiral. Absolutely. Absolutely. And do you feel like as far as other things manifesting into disease, so like thought patterns and anxiety and, and other belief systems that manifest into disease other than like just food part? Mm-hmm. This is huge. And it's, it's not very mainstream, but there's a lot of research behind it. So I'll just tell the audience, go do your research on this. But when we think about so many of us have unresolved trauma from our past or repressed emotions, even if they're just, you know, I didn't feel, for me, it was, I didn't feel known as a child. I didn't feel like my my parents really knew me or saw me. I didn't feel like my friends really knew me or saw me. And that was some repressed emotions I have. I never voiced that. But when we think about what is emotion, it's energy in motion. And when you think about what are we as beings at our very, very root, we are energy. You know, cells are made of atoms. What are atoms made of? Electrons, protons, neutrons. It's just energy. And so when those emotions come up, it's energy trying to flow through you and it needs to get out. But when we repress it, and we don't process it and get it out, that creates a block. And this is, this is going into Chinese medicine, which again, there's so much science behind. But when you create that block, it's not allowing your body to communicate to its other cells appropriately. It's hindering the way your body would do things because it's blocking that energy, which is in effect, affecting all of the other energy communications within the body. So There's so much science to support that repressed emotions are a huge factor that can later on lead to very real physical manifestations of disease. And this is something I've actually learned a lot with because I have stage zero breast cancer and I've actually been working with an integrative cancer doctor here in Irvine, California. And she says, I can't tell you how many times we have a stage four, stage three, stage two cancer patient come into our clinic. Every single one of their cancer patients goes through emotional counseling and they do this thing called EVOX, which helps your body release subconscious emotions. And she said, there's so many people that come in here and as soon as they go through that and they release some of these past traumas and these heavy emotions, within a month, their cancer is gone gone. And she says, you can actually, cancer takes about 10 years. We're getting kind of off topic here, but you know, cancer takes about 10 years to go from like a tiny cancer cell into a tumor. And she says more often than not, when she traces it back 10 years. So let's say someone had a scan this year and the tumor came up. She'll say, well, what happened 10 years ago in your life? And she says, more often than not, 10 years ago in their life, there was an incredibly traumatic event that happened that started this cascade of illness that 10 years later manifested into cancer. So that's a whole thing. (laughs) Again, um, everyone will just have to do more research on that and look into it more. But there is so, so much to it, which is why I always tell people when the emotions come up, when you have really bad news out of nowhere 
or even something as simple as you're listening to a song in the car and you want to start crying, do it, cry. Don't be ashamed about it. Don't beat it down. That is something trying to come out and we have to let it come out. And I'm telling you, I, it's a practice I do now. And, you know, sometimes my boyfriend will walk in and I'm just crying and he's like, are you okay? What's wrong? I'm like, it's so, you know, this song is just really hitting me. Something's coming out. And I always tell him it's okay. It's okay to be sad. We're so fear adverse and sadness adverse that again, we are, we're trained to beat those emotions down or people want to come in and get you out of it right away. Oh no, it's okay. Look at this. Here's the positive. And I think sometimes we just need to sit in the emotions and then let them come out. And nine times out of 10, when you do, you feel a thousand times better. And that doesn't mean they're never going to come back. But when you get it out, oh my gosh, you can feel that tangible release of your body of, whoa, I just let something go. I just got something off my chest. Yes. And do you have any techniques for people who are, who struggle with expressing emotions or, or having a good cry, like to be able to get that stuff out? Yeah. Well, that's, that's diving into a lot of psychology, right? So the root is okay, why, what's hindering you in the first place? And I think a lot of people who have a hard time crying, it's because they have a hard time being vulnerable. And, but a lot of people have a very hard time being vulnerable, even with themselves. And so you have to go back. I'm telling you, so much of it comes from childhood. I always tell people, we come into this world, only 3% of our DNA is coded, which means only 3% of who we are is sort of coming from genetics. The other 97%, we pick up from our environment. So 97% of who we are today is what we learned or were modeled or were coping strategies that we picked up from our childhood. So for the person who has a hard time crying, I would say, okay, let's go back to childhood because that's where it all started. And what was the environment like? Did you not feel safe enough to show those emotions? Or did you not have parents who could show those emotions? Were you modeled by your parents that it's not safe to be vulnerable? Or if you are vulnerable, no one's going to listen to you. And so when you go back to the root of what it is, again, oftentimes that really helps you release it. But the vulnerability is where it all starts with. And then again, I have to bring up this incredible technology called Evox because it's, it's a type of bioenergetic feedback and therapy that actually can scan your body using your voice waves. It can pick up subconscious emotions in the voice and tell you what your body is holding on to, which is so powerful. This is something I tell Every single human being needs to do Evox. It is so life-changing. I don't know why more therapists and psychologists aren't using Evox because, right, when you're in a therapy session, the individual getting the therapy can almost hijack the session. If they're not being totally honest or they don't really know where these feelings are coming from, the therapist can only help with what they're being told. But this Evox actually is able to tell you what the subconscious is still holding on to. And so this is, again, something they use at the cancer center. So I went through five sessions of Evox and I 
it tells you your subconscious emotions about very specific things. So for example, session number one, I was talking about my mom and it told me all of the subconscious feelings I had about my mom. And then I talked about my dad and then my boyfriend and then my job. And it tells you the subconscious things you have and it helps your body physically release them. And the other aspect that is mind blowing about this is we can inherit trauma. And the studies show that our cells can actually hold trauma from nine generations back. So that means if nine generations ago, your great, 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 great grandma was physically abused, there's a chance that you inherited that in your cells. And so it can help you release that from your cells. So, so many people we have to let go of those inherited traumas first because we may be going through life thinking they're ours on a very subconscious level. And then when you release all that inherited stuff, you go, whoa, those aren't my issues to deal with. These are my issues to deal with. And then you can start to work through your own present day subconscious stuff. Again, a whole thing, but I'm so, so passionate about Evox because it's absolutely life-changing. Oh my gosh. I'm so interested. I think this is divine timing. I've been having, when I say like, when I'm asking you like, so when people have trouble expressing emotions, I'm definitely like asking for myself and hope with <laughs> listeners and for other people relate. But, and I think it's so important for people to hear and because so much of it can be directing your, your, your behaviors. Like you can only consciously be aware of so many things. And then so much of it is just happening without our awareness. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was just listening to an interview with Bruce Lipton, who wrote The Biology of Belief. And he was saying 95% of what we do is subconscious, which is just, if that's not enough to convince you that you need to go check out what's happening in your subconscious mind, I don't know what is. Yes, totally. And I guess so kind of going off that moving into the addiction, substance abuse, like what can be fueling that subconscious behavior, things, old wounds from childhood. What do you, I guess, what are your thoughts on that? The compulsive behaviors? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think everyone has a compulsive behavior to some extent, right? And for me, when it comes to addiction or cravings or compulsive behavior, there's, there's two things that could be going on. One is it's emotional your body emotionally, your spirit emotionally is craving something, is craving some kind of band-aid or attention or control. And this is the only way that you have learned how to get it. Or number two, you've truly hijacked your body with all the synthetic sugars or just the overabundance of sugars and synthetic flavors, et cetera, that your body's been trained, almost addicted to want those things. So for me, it comes down to two things, like either it's emotional or it's physiological, the reasons for this addiction. And if it's emotional, again, you have to go back to, okay, I'm not hungry right now. I just ate, but I still want to eat food. Why? Obviously I know this isn't physiological because I just ate and I actually feel pretty full, but I still want to eat. So what is it that I'm actually craving? And it might be that you're just craving control. Like um, maybe you're at a holiday party and you feel like, okay, there's so many people here. I don't really want to see. This is an uncomfortable situation. I don't have a lot of control over things right now. And that's why when you get to these parties, you just go ham on all the food that's there. 
So it's really being aware and being conscious of what are the deeper cravings that are happening here? Or again, it comes back to like, after I had that fake taffy thing, and I, the whole entire week after that, I was craving insane amounts of sugar. For me, I was able to say, okay, this is not normal. And this is a physiological hijacking of my body. And so I know I don't need this sugar. It's not going to help me. And it's going to make this worse, which can help me then, you know, put up more of a defense against that. But also just, you kind of just have to get past that week and then, of course, make sure that you're not eating those things again so you don't keep hijacking yourself. Yes. And I think it's so important to have that awareness of like knowing like this sugar, this is the physiological addiction. This is the sugar talking and it will pass. And I can mm-hmm. like, just have to detox from it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And then the other side, like you said, tuning into that craving for something else. What is your, what are you actually looking for? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because we don't, we don't have enough stillness in modern life to listen to what our body is saying. And I, I don't know if that's intentionally engineered or if that's just how we've come naturally, but most of us are not taking the time to pause and really think through these things. And we're so, again, fear avoidant, pain avoidant that we don't want to pause and really look at what's going on. But as you start to do that, when those things come up, when you're at a holiday party and you go, why the heck am I craving all these things? I don't crave these things normally. You know, still when I go to my parents' house, I just start craving sugar. I start craving all the crap. And so for me, I know, okay, I don't crave these things normally. There's something psychological, emotional going on here. And right there, that's a good place to start. If you acknowledge that there's something more going on, but then the next step of that is to take a couple minutes and sit down and go, okay, what is it? What is it about this environment or these people that is making my brain feel like it needs a little extra comfort and control? And so as you start to break those things down, it leads to the awareness, which, which again leads you to, oh, this isn't a real craving. This is emotional. And hopefully you have a little bit more backing to be able to not give in to those. Yes. And for, for people who are, I guess we can go into the holidays. This is a good segue. <laughs> um, for people who are going into a triggering or they know holidays are very triggering to them, whether it's a family member or in-laws or what it might, whatever it might be. What are your, you had a, an amazing article, everyone on the podcast, go read it um, <laughs> about how to deal with this. So could you go through some of those tips and tools? Yeah. Yeah. That was a fun one to write. I was trying to write it in such a way that my own family wouldn't be like, okay, what is she trying to say here? (laughs) (laughs) But I just know that holidays can be so triggering for people, big holiday gatherings. And I know this year we may not be doing as many of those as normal. Maybe they're much smaller, but still it can be triggering for so many different reasons. And a lot of that can be, we're seeing people that we don't see very often. Maybe we're seeing people who we actually have unresolved trauma with. Maybe it's a sibling or a parent or an uncle who we didn't feel treated us right and that's never come out. So we feel very uncomfortable around them. Or it's just that one like crazy cousin who's just so negative and you you never want to have a conversation with them. So there's so many reasons why it can be uncomfortable. So I wrote up this list of 
hopefully helpful ideas to get through. But a couple of them were number one, set a time limit for how long you're going to be there. And for me as an introvert, this is huge because even if I'm with people I love, my socializing patience runs out very quickly. And so, but especially if you know, okay, I'm going to this gathering. There's going to be a lot of people there. I don't really want to be around. I know I'm going to get to a point where I'm just checked out mentally and emotionally. And so rather than get to that point and then just stay there sort of in a zombie-like hypnotic state, not really connecting with anyone, set a time limit and then let the host know and maybe let a friend know too or a family member know, hey, you know, I'm so excited to be there, but I'm only going to be able to stay until this time. And then as that time rolls around, you've got sort of a partner in crime who's going to say, hey, you know, that time's coming up, like it's okay for you to go now or whatever that is. Um, another one is, this is going to sound kind of harsh, but greet the people you're least excited to see first, because then number one, you kind of get it out of the way. You're not dreading it the whole party or the whole gathering. You're not just like, oh God, I still got to go talk to uncle Frank or whatever it is. And this leads into the have outs for conversations, which is basically like have some sort of predefined sentences or phrases you're going to use when you want to get out of a conversation. So, and this is why it helps to talk to those people early on in the gathering, because right, you might be talking to someone and you do a little catch up and then you say, you know what, Uncle Frank, it was so good to catch up with you. I actually promised Aunt Carol that I was going to help her prepare the food. So I'm going to go do that now. And so when it's earlier on, you might have a couple more excuses that can get you out of it. Or maybe it's, you know, I, I said that I was going to help set the table. Or if it's later on in the evening, uh, I said I was going to help do the dishes. Or, you know what, there's so many other people I haven't caught up with yet. So I'm going to go check in with them now. But it was really good catching up with you. And then you're out and you move on. Um, some of the other ones were have, set an intention for what you want to get out of it or redefine or reset your expectations. So, and this came from my own experience of, I go to these holiday gatherings. I'm so excited to, I want to connect deeply. I haven't seen some of these people in a long time. Some of them I'm very excited to see, but because there's so many people there, I don't end up getting to connect with them. And I leave really disappointed. Oh, I didn't get to talk to this person. I didn't get to talk to that person. And so if we can reset our expectations a little bit and say, okay, this may not be the best environment to catch up with people on a deep, deep level. So number one, I'm not necessarily going to look at this as a time of like deep rejuvenation. I'm going to look at this as a, as a time to gather and catch up a little bit, but I may not be able to have the deepest conversations with people here. But then number two, if you find that you really are needing to be poured into by certain people and you really do want to connect with certain people, you have to make that a priority. Even to the extent of right when you get there, you say, you know, hey, so-and-so, whoever it is, I'm so excited to see you. It's been so long. I would really love to have a long, deep one-on-one -on -one conversation with you. So you know, maybe at this time or after dinner, can we go sneak away and have a good conversation? So being really intentional about seeking out those people that you do want to connect with and setting up time to be with them. And maybe it's you go on a walk so that you actually can get away from the group and really have that alone time. Or maybe you go off into, you know, a smaller corner of the house. And if someone comes up, it's totally okay to say, 
oh, hey, you know what? We're actually having a good one-on-one -on -one conversation right now, but we'd love to come over and join you in a couple minutes. And then, you know, there's nine, but I'll, I'll end with, it is okay to not go. If the environment is one that it is just too toxic, and I know this is the reality for many people that maybe there's a lot of drinking and maybe it fights break out. Uh, it gets very verbally abusive. Maybe it even gets physically abusive to some extent. You do not need to attend that gathering. And there are going to be people, there are going to be family members who shame you for not coming. But the reason why they're shaming you is because they themselves feel the shame that they behave a certain way. So moral of the story at the end of all of that was, if you read through that whole list of nine things and you still don't feel like those are enough to get you through something, just don't go. <laughs> yes. Oh, thank you so much for these. These are so helpful. Oh, one other thing I want to talk about was body image before we close. I know oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're approaching close on time, but I, it's something that I, I see all the time and it's on Instagram. And just what are your thoughts on people getting very attached to their body image as far as worthiness goes? Mm -hmm. So for me, I, I had a bit of an epiphany a few years ago because all through high school, I hated the way I looked, which is just absurd. Um, I was like an athlete training all this time, but I always felt like as a soccer player, oh my gosh, my legs are so big. I look so chubby, whatever, whatever. And I looked, there was a point in college when I looked back at those high school photos and I was like, oh my gosh, I looked good. I looked perfect. Like where, what was I missing here? And all of a sudden it just clicked for me that because present day, maybe I was feeling like, oh, I don't look that good. Maybe I, my legs could be slimmer still. My abs could be more defined, whatever it is. And in that moment, I realized, oh my gosh, 30 years from now, 40 years from now, I'm going to look back at this exact moment at pictures from this exact moment and be like, damn, I looked good. And so all of a sudden, and I just, cause it made me realize, wow, I spent my whole high school years hating how I looked. And I do not want to do that anymore because it's all perspective, first of all. So right then and there, that shifted it for me. And from that moment on, I was like, I'm going to love how I look. Even if I, you know, maybe picked up five pounds from the holidays or this or that, I'm going to love how I look because there's going to come a day where I look back and I'm like, girl, you look so good. You look fine. But the other, the flip side of that is also, again, why are we looking to others to validate us through our looks and do our looks define us? And if they do, why? Um, you know, for me, I always try to ask myself, if I didn't have blonde hair, would I be a different person? If I wasn't white, would I be a different person? So who am I really? And am I defining myself by my looks or my voice or whatever it is. And that really shakes you to your core of like, holy shit. Yeah. Wait a second. I do actually sort of love that I have blonde hair. Um, and how much of what I, who I am is wrapped up in that. And so what that does is that breaks you and shakes you down to who am I outside of all those things. And I think when you can hit on that for me, what I really landed on is I want to define myself based on intangible things. I want to be defined by things like she's kind, she's thoughtful, she's introspective, she's intentional. 
I want those to be the things that define me. But the other side of that too is what I've seen in myself and others is when we're looking for external validation, more often than not, it's because we ourselves don't believe we have those things. If we're looking for someone to make us feel like we're smart, it's because we don't believe we're smart. If we're looking for someone to tell us we're pretty, it's because deep down, consciously, subconsciously, we don't believe we're pretty. And so that right there can tell you how big of an issue you have. The more you're wanting that validation, the more you don't believe those things about yourself. And again, you have to go back to, okay, why don't I think I'm smart? Why don't I think I'm lovable? Or why do I think I'm not lovable? Why do I think I'm not pretty? Where did I pick that up? So I'll, I'll try to give a really tangible example here. So for me, growing up, my parents were divorced, I think when I was about four or five. And my dad, because of his own childhood trauma, was never able to connect to people. He was not able to be vulnerable and to know me and to share himself. So he never asked me questions about myself. The extent of it was, you know, how are you? And then he'd move on and go talk about himself for the next five hours. And what I realized as an adult is what that taught me as a child, what I picked up subconsciously is if my own father isn't interested in who I am, I must not be worth being known. And I, all of a sudden, I saw how that has been playing out through my entire life. Because I've never had a huge group of friends. I know a part of that is I'm introverted. I'm never going to have a big group of friends. But also, I wasn't showing my true self to people. And why wasn't I showing my true self to people? Because I didn't believe I was worthy of being known. And so as soon as I made that connection, it was like, whoa. Everything started shifted and I felt free to show who I am because I felt worthy of being known because I myself believed I was worthy of being known. Thank you so much for sharing that. That hit hard. Thank you. Any tools for people who are struggling with, with the, the body image, like places to start if they're having a hard time breaking free from that? Yeah, I think it's going back to why do I need this validation? You know, and if I feel like I'm needing it so much, who, why don't I love myself that much? Or why don't I think this? Why don't I think that? And, you know, acknowledging that the people who are going to judge you because of how you look are not the people that you probably want to play an intimate part in your life. You know, when we define ourselves based on material things like the clothes we wear or how we look or the car we drive, we start to choose friends who do the same thing. And if we're on a path to becoming the best version of ourselves, those are not the people who are going to help you achieve that goal. Those are the people who are going to keep you stuck in that negative cycle because they themselves are dealing with all those same things. So looking for people who are on a similar journey as you are, they're on a journey to achieve their highest self. And that doesn't mean that you just cut everyone out who isn't there, but it means that you can look at friends and say, you know what, those friends are a great time. I laugh all day when I'm with them, but the conversation isn't very deep. They don't help me become a better person. And so when I just feel like having a good time, 
I'm going to hang out with them. But when I really need someone to help me grow, someone to look at me and be honest with the patterns they're seeing in my life, someone to challenge me, someone to hold me accountable, I might need to go to different people for that. And we may not always have those people and it's hard to find them, but you know, we are a collection of the people, the five people we spend the most time with. So look at those people and ask yourself, do I want to be a collection of those five people? And again, it's not easy. It can be super hard to wake up and look around and say, these people are not helping me get to where I want to be. And again, it doesn't mean you have to cut them out, but maybe it shifts your priorities a little bit to where you're not spending as much time with them and you're really actively seeking out those people who are going to pour into you and who you can pour into and they'll take that and improve themselves as well. Oh, thank you so much, Leon. And I guess to wrap up, I want to talk to you forever, but I realize we're, <laughs> we're, we're getting close to time. But so where can people find you if they want to connect with you? Sure, yeah, I'm... I'm on my website, which is just leannelindsay.com. You might have to spell that out for them. Yeah, I'll put it <laughs> in the my, my name's spelled a little differently. And then also on Instagram, just at leannelindsay and my podcast, which is the Crescent Podcast. Yes. And for listeners, if you have one final piece of advice to share with the audience for them to elevate or just to take with them, what would that be? I love that question. And for me, it would be, get comfortable with the uncomfortable. Because again, I've said it multiple times in this interview, our, for most of us, our whole lives is spent running from pain, running from fear, trying to avoid it at all costs. And that means that we oftentimes don't look at those negative patterns, look at those things we inherited. And we end up the same person at 95 as we were at 25. But if you can learn to get comfortable with the uncomfortable, when you feel those things come up, lean into them, dive into them, explore them. I'm telling you, you have no idea what you can overcome and how far you can go in life. Beautiful. <laughs> thank you so much, Leanne. Yes, Ali, thank you. That was so fun. I really enjoyed that. <laughs>